How's everybody doing? Okay. Getting close to the end here. So I want to talk about, um, obviously, you know what I'm going to talk about because I sent you the slides. Do you, have you found uh, having the slides ahead of time helpful? Okay. Um, a few rules to talk about, and I've, I've sort of categorized them under um, duties to disclose and uh, improper influences. So let's start with um, Here we go. Okay, this is another one of those rules, obviously, where there's a, a number of um, key words that you have to pay close attention to. Um, lawyers shall not knowingly, so again, it's, it, it requires actual knowledge, uh, shall not knowingly fail to disclose. In other words, a lawyer must disclose to the tribunal any legal authority in the controlling jurisdiction known to be directly adverse to the position of the client. Okay, so how do, what's the controlling jurisdiction? So um, you have to look at the uh, sort of uh, legal structure of the jurisdiction. If you're, I think we've talked about, if you're in um, here, the Western District of New York, a, a trial court uh, federal from the Federal District of uh, Southern District of New York would not be, uh, uh, controlling authority over us, over the Western District. Um, so it has to be within the controlling jurisdiction and directly adverse, right? So uh, something that is, is sort of inargu inarguably um, contrary to your position, right? Um, if there is a case like that, if there is a case like that, that that you know to be directly contrary to your position in the controlling jurisdiction, you have to disclose it if the opposing counsel has not done so. Uh, why why is that? Why do we we don't we don't have a similar requirement to disclose facts or adverse facts, do we? Um, what is the what is the rationale for this? The comments tell us. Um, this is based on the principle that the, uh, the law should be out there. The, uh, the, the ruling principles, the governing principles should be available for everyone so that they're, they're on the same page, right? So that um, the idea is that the comment says the, uh, the underlying concept is that a legal argument is a discussion seeking to determine the legal premises properly applicable to the case. So there should be no question of, of trying to hide cases or authorities that uh, that are relevant to the matter. The other, there is a limited duty to disclose in an ex parte proceeding. And we've talked about ex parte proceedings in the past. This is where for some reason or another, the uh, one of the parties uh, is represented before the judge, and the other one, the other party, is not present. Um, com the example, common example that's given in the in the comment is um, something like seeking a temporary restraining order. The party who seeks that order is going to be before the court, before the judge, uh, asking for that for that to be granted. The other party is obviously not present. Um, other than that, generally, there, there's, as you saw in the casebook, there's, there's debate over whether there's a similar duty to disclose in uh, administrative or less, or less adversarial kinds of proceedings. Uh, and apparently, it's, these cases come up frequently in uh, cases on uh, Social Security disability benefits. Um, and so there are ethics opinions differ. Uh, some courts would say that there is there is still an, a requirement to disclose adverse facts, maybe that show that your client is not disabled. Um, other courts, other uh, ethics opinions say no. This was sort of settled by a, a set of regulations in 2015 
Social Security Administration required that lawyers submit all relevant evidence favorable or not. So uh, we get that settled for us. Um, okay. Improper influences, and we're just going to go through these rules quickly because we've got and we've got some examples to to work through. Um, lawyer shall not seek to influence a judge by means prohibited by law. Right? Obviously, the the the, uh, the uh, lawyer's job is to try to to influence the judge, the jury, jury, and so on, but only using means uh, within uh, the legal realm may not communicate ex parte with a judge, juror, etc., unless authorized to do so by law or court order. Uh, may not communicate, well, let's, section C is probably better to, to uh, restate maybe in, in a more positive uh, position. Uh, a lawyer may communicate with a juror or prospective juror after the discharge of the case if it's not prohibited uh, if the juror has not made known their desire not to talk to the, any of the lawyers. And if the communication does not involve misrepresentation, coercion, et cetera. So this is a limited um, duty to disclose. Uh, let's see. Trial publicity, this is probably, um, Probably the most uh, complex of these rules. Um, rule 3.6, a lawyer. Okay, so again, there's a number of qualifications in this rule. Uh, very, you know, boiled down, it prohibits ex uh, prejudicial, extrajudicial statements. Um, again, there, there, are, there are qualifications. It applies only to a lawyer who has participated or is participating in the litigation. This does not prevent other lawyers who are not involved in this particular litigation from talking about it, from appearing on, on news media and so on to talk to comment on a case. Uh, but a lawyer who is involved in the investigation or litigation of a matter may not make an extrajudicial statement, which is a statement outside of court that the lawyer knows or reasonably should know will be distributed by the media, will be disseminated by means of public communication, and that will have a substantial likelihood of materially prejudicing an adjudicative proceeding in the matter. Okay, so a lawyer may not make a uh, extrajudicial, extrajudicial statement that the lawyer knows or reasonably should know will be spread in the media and will have a substantial likelihood of, of prejudicing the proceeding. Okay, the um, and again, this applies only to lawyers who are involved in the litigation. Uh, does not mean that any other lawyer can't comment on it. There are, and in this rule gives a number of examples, a number of specifications to as to what is prohibited, is permitted, and what is not permitted. So. Um, Section B tells us that uh, despite the limitation in section A, there are things that a lawyer can't say, right? And so that's why you will see these things or, or hear these things comment on frequently in when lawyers make public statements about uh, a case. Uh, they, they may talk about the claim of offense or defense, anything in a public record, you may state certain things, for instance, that a matter is being investigated. Um, if you can ask for assistance in, in finding evidence, you can warn the public of danger if there is a uh, person involved, person of interest, a suspect or whatever, who might be dangerous. And in a criminal case, there are ad certain additional things you can state, the identity, uh, residence, occupation, et cetera, of the accused. Um, if you're still looking for the accused, uh, information necessary to aid in apprehension, fact, time, and place of arrest, identity of the investigating officers, and that sort of thing. So this specifies, this does not 
these are not the only things that a lawyer may say about a case, but these are things that are in generally pretty safe for the lawyer to say, right? Um, so there, you, you won't see statements usually limited to this, but you'll see some sort of caution around um, making sure that they're not exceeding what's permit, uh, permissible. Uh, the comments say, comment five tells us that there are a number of things that are um, will likely not have a prejudicial effect. Uh, okay. Okay, so um, here under comment five, certain things that you may say, generally without any fear of being sanctioned for it. Um, I, I'm sorry, I take that back. These are things to avoid, right? These are things that are likely to be prejudicial. Uh, any comment about the uh, character or reputation of a, of a suspect or a witness, um, possibility of plea of guilty, et cetera. So these things are listed here under comment five. Franco, what do you have, what do you have to say? Yeah, does the uh, prohibition apply to the firm? I know that it's to the leading to the lawyer that is deviating the matter, but can the firm make a statement? Hmm. Um, that's a good question. I don't, it, it's not, well, this isn't really a conflict of interest rule, so that wouldn't necessarily mean that the conflict rule would apply. Um, I think it would generally be interpreted as that it applies to the rest of the firm as well. Um, I haven't seen any cases on it where uh, other members of the firm spoke out, you know, violated or uh, said things that would not be permissible. Yeah, and nothing happens. So I would I would say the best interpretation is that it would apply to the rest of the firm. Okay, thank you. If you find anything to the contrary, let me know. Okay. Uh, okay. Other than that, I'm losing my mouse here. I am sorry about this. Here we go. Okay. So there is, again, a... Um, I am sorry, my mouse is working, uh, is acting up here. Okay. That's not the one I want. All right. Uh, <coughs> <coughs> There's another exception, excuse me, <coughs> allowing a lawyer to make a statement that would otherwise uh, bump up against the, the limitation on 3.6, and that's if the other lawyer has already said something that might be prejudicial to their client. So if, um, so 3.6C, a lawyer may make a statement if a reasonable lawyer would believe it's necessary to protect their client from, excuse me, from the undue prejudicial effect of recent publicity not initiated by the lawyer or the lawyer's client. <clears throat> so you can't go out and stir up controversy in order to uh, respond to it. But if um, your uh, defense attorney and the prosecutor has said something that's prejudicial uh, or vice versa, you may respond to that. Um, but again, this is, as in many of these exceptions that we've looked at, your, your, the permission is limited. 
the last section of the rule says, um, any statement uh, pursuant to this rule shall be limited to such information as is necessary to mitigate the recent adverse publicity. So whatever was said that was offensive, you may counter that. Um, you can't raise it. You can't um, say additional things with the, within uh, the protection of this rule. Um, the let's see. All right. This is that was a little little um, the Monday class. I don't know what can I say. Uh, let's let's take a break now. Or let's not take a break, but let's. Um, before we go into the problem, 11-9, any questions? Because I, I feel that I stumbled over that and I apologize. Frank, you had a question and I answered it, I hope. Um, nope, all right, let's, as usual, I think it's it's best to try and apply these rules in, uh, in, in the case of a problem. So let's go to problem 11-9. Um, and I'll, I'll give you five minutes on this one. It's not, it's not a terribly complex one, uh, but, Discuss the questions. Should um, should you mail a letter? Let's see. Should you mail the letter in question? Uh, and what, if any, changes should you make before you send it? Okay. So I'll see you in about five minutes. All right, um, Kristen, Kristen O'Connor, what did your group say? Would you send the letter or not? Um, we talked about not including the last two paragraphs. Um, we weren't really sure, but we thought that might be like constitute prejudicial information. Um, the entire have, last two paragraphs? Yeah. I don't know. We were not really mm -hmm. confident in our answer. Yeah. Uh, we thought the majority of the letter was fine. Okay. Um, anybody think that, what, would anybody, I mean, there is some objectionable material in those last two paragraphs. Could anybody narrow it down a little more? I don't think you need to throw them completely out. Hannah? Um, we said that um, talking about that she um, spent time for a crime that she didn't commit, talking about her innocence um, in, let's see, the um, number six of comment five, because mm -hmm. um, her sentence was overturned because of a technicality for an admission of evidence or not allowing them. Um, admission of evidence. We said that they improperly relied on her innocence in the publication. Um, and then we also said that the lie detector test shouldn't be included um, because comment five says that you shouldn't um, include the performance or results of any examination mm -hmm. or test that you're gonna use as evidence. Okay, so yeah, comment, section three there, uh, the physical, the lie detector is an example of such a test, Gianna? Um, the line in the second to last paragraph that says she moved away from Cabell, but she returned to him a week later when he promised that he would get help. Um, I obviously that's like the fact of the case, but I just see, feel like it makes her look bad in that, you know, if you're not including all the information about battered woman syndrome or, or whatnot, um, just makes her look bad, like she went back to the attacker and thus it's her fault that her daughter was murdered or something like that. Mm -hmm. Is that, I don't think that's something that's I don't see, I think that's something that's specifically indicated here that would be, I mean, it's obviously our, our presumably bad strategy to say that perhaps, but um, so that's a, that's a good point, but yeah. Um, I just, I don't know, if there's anything else. it's definitely yeah. a fact of the case that's gonna come out regardless, but that might be one of the things that the um, the prosecutor uses, like might, might be one of their arguments. So I don't know in terms of 
how prejudicial it is if that would be a reason not to. Mm -hmm. Okay, so so that might have been a strategic mistake. And if if it's that's the case, it might have been a failure of competence or something like that. Okay, anything else? Anybody else? Any other anybody else to make any other changes to the letter? Probably take out the comment about the uh, the lie detector test, Brian. It seems like um, talking about the police um, ignoring her police report and releasing Cabell is is kind of character or commenting on the character credibility of um, I guess it would be a witness. Um, mm -hmm. well, I'm not sure actually, how to read that? I'm not sure. I guess it would be of a party. It seems like you might get into trouble with that. Mm-hmm. Um, character, credibility, reputation. Of, um, yeah, it's it's a little hard to say. I mean, in a, a criminal prosecution, is is the prosecutor's uh, a party or the lawyer? But yeah, I think that's a good. I think that's a good uh, call there. That that would be that would be uh, probably violative of section one here, Kristen. I just had a, like a question because sure. it seems like um, they're obviously going to be using the battered woman defense, mm -hmm. but is it okay to like, I know this is just a letter, so it's like not actually in court, but I don't know if this lawyer is like an expert talking about battered woman syndrome. So is that okay to be speaking about something that you're actually might be using at trial where you're not actually knowledgeable in the area? Does that make so sense? yeah, one, one, um, one question that raised for me is, is if we were in court, if, if the lawyer may, could not make a statement uh, that would regarding evidence that they're, they're not going to present, right? They could, couldn't make a factual statement unless they're going to present factual evidence to back that up. So they would presumably have to include expert testimony to, to do that. But again, that, this doesn't apply here because it's out of court. So there's a little more flexibility there. That's, that's a good question. Anybody else? Okay, again, this was based on a real case. Um, the the um, State Disciplinary Commission, okay, let's see. Um, this is exactly the way the letter was published. The um, lawyer moved for a change of venue the jury deadlocked and the client later accepted a plea agreement. So um, the State Disciplinary Commission public, publicly recommend, reprimanded the lawyer for writing this letter. Oh, Hannah? I just had a quick question about number one. Um, it says the ex, uh, expected testimony of a party or witness. Does it have to be saying what a certain witness's testimony would be or just revealing the underlying information um, that would be the subject of the testimony because I didn't know if um, talking about uh, battered women's syndrome or certain defenses, um, if that could be included in their expected testimony or an expert's testimony. But I didn't know okay. if it counted if they didn't say, you know, an expert would say that she had battered women's syndrome. Um. Well, one th one thing is looking at this from this comment. These are. This is not a firm checklist. These are, it says, these are matters that are more likely than not to have a prejudicial effect. So it could vary depending on the circumstances. So it doesn't, that doesn't mean that these comments are automatically excluded. Um, but there's, there's a risk for a lawyer talking about these matters. Uh, the ex expect, expected testimony of a party or witness. Um, that's a good question. I think. Um, Again, they're, they're, that may be slightly improper, but um, yeah, I, I would say, yeah, that would probably fall under that as well. Doesn't mean that some lawyers wouldn't do it. It, it may not be that, that great of a violation. There are, there are worse things you could say. Um, so that's, that's a, another good call. Thank you. Um, Okay, one thing that nobody has mentioned is that the state Supreme Court, when they uh, upheld the uh, public sanction, took offense to the, the word abominable in the second to last sentence. 
that this, uh, this decision to re-prosecute her is abominable. Um, and the, I guess the Supreme Court is sensitive for some reason, but uh, they mentioned that. The court said that his punishment was light. Okay, see, he, this was a somewhat offensive letter uh, in terms of offending against 3.6, uh, but they said uh, because his he had no real selfish motive and was only advocating zealously for his client, uh, the uh, it received he received a light punishment for that and incidentally the, the boyfriend was sentenced to 65 years in prison okay the well the, i i wanted to spend some time also um and i'm sort of springing this on you but the article excerpt on page 692 okay this is the question of impeachment of truthful witnesses and this is this is not something that's specifically addressed in the rules, but it does raise significant questions. And so you know, I think it's worth uh, talking about a little bit. Um, so I'm going to give you again five minutes to discuss this article, Harry Subin, The Criminal Defense Lawyer's Different Mission, Reflections on the Right to Present a False Cases on pages 692 and 693 um and the question on page 694 so the question asks would it be proper for the lawyer to cross-examine the complainant in this in this case which is a rape case um and um i don't know exactly how to um again you know i'm trying to figure out how to give a a, a a, a trigger warning for anyone who chooses not to participate. If you don't want to discuss this one, don't discuss it. Take five minutes and take a break. But uh, those who do want to discuss it, I, I will call, I will uh, ask for volunteers after five minutes. Okay. So uh, I'll see you in five. Um, so the way we can talk about this is, first of all, um, is there anything in the rules that would address this question about whether the lawyer should do this kind of, of cross-examination, right? Is there anything that might suggest that this could be improper? Mitchell, what do you think? I apologize. I was having trouble unmuting. Um, I actually, so what I looked at was uh, rule 1.3 sort of coming on uh, in the, in favor of the attorney being able to do this. Like, I think um, something that came up in our group was, you know, whether or not there was a distinction between uh, this sort of cross-examination technique versus perhaps uh, putting on an alibi witness after your client uh, admitted to you, um, you know, that, that he did this. So like, I don't know if there's any difference, but um, with rule 1.3, comment one, um, you know, well, well, it isn't a requirement in the rule anymore to um, specifically to, to zealously advocate for your client. I feel like if you if you're not able to cross uh, the victim in this case, um, I wonder if there could perhaps be some tension between 1.3 and you know your duty to your client to advocate is you know with with some level of of, of zeal um, versus you know not engaging in this cross. So I I those are my thoughts I guess in terms of 1.3. Okay, so you're basing it sort of on, on a on a broad interpretation of the duty of diligence for 1.3 that that there's a general duty um, to represent your client diligently, uh, and the comment says with zealously. Um, Anthony, what do you think? Yeah, so we thought that um, 
8.4c came into play here, uh, where you can't engage in dishonesty or deceitful or fraudulent or misrepresenting conduct. And we thought that that mm -hmm. came into conflict with your duty of diligence towards the client. So if the if you know that the the uh, the witness that you're impeaching is actually being truthful, then then you would technically, I guess, be engaging in dishonest conduct because you're trying to impeach a witness that you know is telling the truth. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm glad you used the word technically because that sort of raised the question of, of how, again, how do you, I think you're right, They're, these rules are somewhat in conflict. So how do you, how do you resolve that? Um, and I guess if you want to read um, 8.4c, you could read it narrowly, right? Is the lawyer, um, is the lawyer lying? It, how, you know, how I mean, can you ask a question dishonestly? It's sort of, you know, sort of a philosophical question about that. Um, how would you argue that, that 8.4c applies in this, in this case? I mean, what is the dishonesty fraud or whatever? I, I would say that the dishonesty is trying to impeach a witness that you knowingly, that you know is telling the truth. Like that just seems like you're almost trying to hide the truth from the tribunal. So I feel like that also comes in a conflict with 3.3 because you're mm -hmm. not uh, providing the tribunal with accurate facts. Okay. Um, well, again, so you're, you're taking, uh, again, a, a sort of very uh, broad reading of 8.4c, right? Saying you're interpreting dishonesty broadly and taking a, a very narrow, uh, well, also taking a very broad reading of 3.3, that um, this, that questioning, I mean, again, technically questioning is not making a false statement of fact, right? It's a question. Um, okay, which, which of those uh, interpretations, well, I'll, I'll sort of I'll let this discussion go on some more. Jacob, what do you think? Uh, just kind of related to what Tony was saying, I think the thing it's most applicable for, or 8.4c is, um, mm -hmm. is the gun issue. Because it says, mm -hmm. all, you know, although it is actually the one used. So I think that's one of the cases where it seems like the attorney knows that he's trying to kind of deceive the jurors or the court or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. I don't really know the background of, you know, this gun information, but you know that one specifically seems like he knows the information is false, or, mm -hmm. or with the other ones, you know, you could say maybe he doesn't necessarily actually know if it's if she's being truthful, but I think that one right there is kind of a big issue. Okay, um, Brian. Yeah, I mean, I I think if you sort of look at, um, you know, what Justice White is suggesting here. Uh, defense counsel has no obligation to present the truth. I mean, obviously, when we're talking about like something very specific, like having somebody testify falsely, um, that's not the case. Um, but when you're questioning a, uh, a, a witness, you know, you're going to ask them questions about their demeanor, you're going to ask questions, you know, at the time that, that suggest uh, to the jury that perhaps it's odd, you know, you're going to highlight inconsistencies. And I don't, I don't think doing any of all of those things, I don't think is equivalent to being dishonest. Uh, otherwise, it's just not possible for you to do your job. Yeah. In some ways, I think this, this situation is somewhat parallel on a different level uh, with that, uh, the problem of the, the body double. Remember bringing in the uh, the law firm messenger who looks like the client, and having the uh, the arresting officer misidentify him. Um, I mean, because again, they're not uh, the lawyer did not lie, strictly speaking. Um, so I think there, there's something similar in a way um, as to how far do you want, how much, how do you want to interpret. Uh, dishonesty, deceit, and so on. Um, 
Anything else in the rules that would, would address this? There's one that we haven't, um, that we'll talk about next week, uh, I think, rule 4.4. Uh, so if, if this is, if, well, um, this is a criminal, a criminal uh, charge. So strictly speaking, uh, the, the woman here is not a party, right? She's a witness, right? And rule 4.4, respect for rights of third persons, um, a lawyer shall not use means that have no substantial purpose other than to embarrass, delay, or burden a third person, or use methods of obtaining evidence that violate the rights of such a person. So would that would that apply to this situation? 4.4a. Brian? Well, I, I think you, I mean, I think the obvious answer is that you're not doing this um, to embarrass or burden the witness. Um, you're, you're doing it to defend your client. Um, I'm just reading a book called Guilty People right now that, um, you know, and it's a feminist defense attorney. She talks about this, right, this issue right here, and um, she just seems to accept that you have to do it. Hmm. You know, and it's, she often feels <clears throat> badly for the witness, um, but that's, uh, you know, she has like a, a <clears throat> an impulse. Um, hmm. To uh, to try to comfort them in some way, but that would just be that would be dishonest. Okay. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, again, the rule, reading the rule strictly, it's uh, it prohibits means that have no substantial purpose other than to embarrass, and clearly that's not the purpose here. The lawyer knows that she would be burdened, be embarrassed, at the very least. Um, but the purpose is to defend his, his client. Um, Sarah. So I know that the lawyer generally has no duty to prove and they can allow the prosecution to prove all the elements of the charge. But in this case, would it be advisable for the lawyer to advise the clients to actually conf confess or like plead guilty? Or if the client says, yes, I did it, you still have to defend them and show that they're innocent until proven guilty. Um, well, okay, so, so finally, the, well, the client did confess eventually, um, before, even before the pre preliminary hearing. So you, should the, you're asking, should the lawyer have tried to persuade the client to plead guilty or something like that? Yeah. Well, so if the lawyer that's a good, knows yeah. the, the client committed the crime, mm -hmm. do they, mm -hmm. other than outside of the rules, do they have, is it advisable for them to tell the clients, listen, you know, you did this, like, just say you did it. So, you know. Or should they still defend the clients as a criminal defense attorney? Well, I guess um, you could look at that, um, say under rule 2.1, lawyer as advisor, right? So uh, that's where, you know, in rendering advice, a lawyer may refer not only to law, but to other considerations such as moral, economic, social and political factors, et cetera. So, so that would give you some support for doing that, right? Which again, this is, um, okay. What three, what uh, 2.1 requires is independent professional judgment and candid advice. Uh, that's required, but then it says a lawyer may in doing that, but doesn't have to refer to these other factors. So presumably it would not be a violation of the rules for the lawyer to do that, to, well, to raise moral concerns, right? Um, 
But that's a different thing, though, than trying to persuade your client to plead guilty, isn't it? Could a, could a lawyer be re representing his client um, uh, diligently, competently, even if he plead if he advises his client to plead guilty without a plea agreement of some sort? Maybe there's a plea, uh, there could be a plea agreement on the table. Mitchell, what do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, it still would go back to, it wouldn't be, it, you know, the lawyer shouldn't, I guess, advise their client to confess if they truly don't, or if they truly feel that, um, sorry, the only way that they should do that is if they truly feel that that's the best thing for their client. I don't think in really any case that just confessing is the best thing for your client, possibly a plea deal or something. Um, but I think the number one consideration, I think you have a duty to your client to represent them. Um, you know, and you took that duty on. So I think, you know, you know, if a plea agreement is the best thing for your client in your professional opinion, sure. Um, but if going to trial and making making the state prove their case is the best thing for your client, then I think that's what you need to do. Okay. Um, so suppose, though, that the lawyer, the client confesses to the lawyer, and then the lawyer is horrified. See, the lawyer is is um, uh, feels he cannot defend the client on that basis because you know the client has confessed to this heinous crime. Uh, what should the lawyer do then, Sarah? Um, I think in that case, the lawyer can withdraw under the um, rule that states that if there's a, a serious disagreements between the lawyer and the clients on, um, basically, yeah, a fundamental disagreement, then the lawyer may withdraw. Okay, that, that would be 1.16b4. The client insists upon taking action that the lawyer considers repugnant or, or with which the lawyer has a fundamental disagreement. So the taking action would be not confessing, right? Or not pleading, not pleading guilty. Um, so yeah, so in that case, the, um, what does that mean? So the lawyer may withdraw in that case, right? It's not required under one point, um, 1.16b4. However, okay, so let's th assume though that, okay, section 1.16a1 says the lawyer has to uh, withdraw if the representation will result in the violation of the rules of professional conduct. So would, would the lawyer proceeding in this, in this case, continuing to represent the client, even though he finds the client disgusting or whatever, would that uh, violate uh, the rules of professional conduct? Constantine? Uh, I'm gonna say no, because if you find that the client is lying or trying to commit a crime, that's a different story. But if you just find that, that maybe you don't like their personality or their morals, <clears throat> Uh, at the end of the day, every client still has a right to representation, you know? So I, I don't know. I think you could withdraw, but that's more of a permissive thing. Mm -hmm. Anybody else? Um, we could look at, oh, Deborah. Um, I think um, opposing views on your client especially like their being and just how they are is very, very critical to the representation that you give them because there is such a thing as like implicit bias. So mm -hmm. you don't want to represent a client just because you feel like morally they deserve representation, but you don't agree with something substantial as far as like values and views. So the lawyer should represent a client under those circumstances or should not? No, I don't think a lawyer should represent a client that they, um. Um, disagree with on substantial things. Okay. Um, 
I would look at rule 1.7, the general conflict of interest rule. Um, what does that say? Um, I think this might fall under 1.7 B1. Um, the question whether the lawyer would reasonably believe that he could provide competent and diligent representation to a client that he has this uh, feeling about, right? Who he cannot sympathize with. Um, right. So, so that if that's the case, then it would be. Uh, that would be a violation of, of the conflict of interest rules for the lawyer to represent a client whom he could not represent, right? Um, that he couldn't, if he could not represent that client diligently or competently, it'd be a violation of 1.1 and 1.3. So at least um, the lawyer would be permitted to withdraw in such a situation. Um, Who thinks the lawyer, okay, Brian. I was just wondering though, would he really though? I mean, most, most people are appointed lawyers, aren't they? Um, often, yeah, but then again, the lawyer, the lawyer could seek to withdraw, could ask for permission to withdraw. And if the court says no, then the lawyer has to comply. Right, I mean, right. And what are you, you, you're gonna need to provide the, the judge with, with something as a, as a reason, you know, something that isn't a violation of confidentiality. Um, I just mm -hmm. wonder, I'm just as a practical question, I'm just wondering how, yeah. how far you're gonna, you're gonna get just telling the judge that you have like a, a moral reservation about defending somebody. That wouldn't work, but the lawyer could certainly say, um, I have to withdraw for, ethical reasons uh, or for, um, you know, because of, of a, you know, or say uh, conflict of interest even, right? You wouldn't have, you shouldn't have to specify what that is. The judge should not inquire beyond that. If the lawyer says um, the, eth the ethical, my ethical duties require me to withdraw and the judge says no, because it would be prejudicial to the client or something like that, then uh, the judge should not be, they might, but they should not inquire beyond that, ask for more confidential detail, right? So I mean, that's, I think, fairly routine. Well, certainly a lot of criminal defense lawyers are going to, you know, um, they, they, um, they represent people who commit heinous crimes all the time. Right, and one thing I've heard from many of them is you have to, you have to, you learn somehow to sympathize or empathize with your client, see their humanity even in, in spite of that. Um, suppose um, instead of this uh, Harry Subin here, who looks, uh, see, he was middle aged when this happened. Suppose the the lawyer were a young woman who was frightened of this client. Could she, with, could she withdraw or should she withdraw? Suppose the client had threatened her. This is, we're sort of going beyond this, this particular problem. We're sort of reviewing the rules on withdrawal for, uh, so let's see, Brian, you have anything to add on that? I was just going to add again from the, the book that I'm reading, which is fascinating. I highly recommend it, Guilty People. She uh, she talks about it being rare, but that there were she did have clients that scared her and that she could not relate to. And she would even warn like um, the student fellows that she worked with not to be, you know, to, to watch out um, mm -hmm. around the client. But I, she never gave any any indication this may just be an individual preference, never gave any sort of indication that um, that would cause her to withdraw. But, you know, she's also quite, quite experienced. Mm -hmm. So, okay. 
would any is there is there anybody who thinks it would be wrong for the lawyer to do this kind of uh, aggressive cross examination? Sort of, I, I it's even more than that, the sort of misleading uh, cross examination. Does anybody think it's it's? Does anyone think that it's wrong, and that maybe it's it's a sad thing that the rules would seem to allow it? And if you feel that way, how would you change the rules? What what amendment would you offer to the rules? Um, to to um, to respond to this, Lizzie. Um. Just for kind of context, I have a huge amount of bias on this topic because I um, in the I'm in the Family Violence and Women's Rights Clinic, and that's a I want to do domestic violence work mm -hmm. in the future, more in family law than criminal. But um, so this is going from a huge place of bias, but I think it is not. I don't think it should be used. I think it's misleading um, from that side and like just the style standpoint. But I also think that people deserve to be represented. I think all people are to be represented and that defense attorneys get a wildly bad rap because they like have to do stuff like this um, for people who arguably don't deserve it. So um, maybe changing the questioning so it's not trying to make her look like a liar, but I don't even know how you could do that. And I don't think that there's a way to change the rules so that people can still be adequately represented and a defendant mm -hmm. can be adequately represented. So in summary, I don't have an answer. And I just wish but, it didn't so have you're, to be you're, sympath you're sympathetic to the problem, but you don't have a solution as far, yeah. as, far as how you would change your rules. That's, that's legitimate. Thank you, Lisa. Victoria, what do you think? Um, I don't think I have a solution either, but I kind of agree with Lizzie in the sense that People deserve to be represented, and as an attorney, it's your job to advocate for your client to the best of your ability, and I think it's difficult, especially with victims of domestic violence, to not cross that line into being, you know, insensitive or, you know, morally, just, just not morally agreeable by that kind of examination, but I don't really know if there is an answer, because like I said, there's that line where you have to defend your client to the best of your ability, and Sometimes that means crossing the line and not always doing what we would consider to be morally right. Okay, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a dilemma. Thank you, Victoria. Anybody else have any thoughts on that? Brian? I, I don't really know how you would do this, but um, <clears throat> you know, it. Possibly just like on a on a redirect or something. It it should be um, it should be okay to sort of um, just sort of point out that uh, people who have been traumatized often have problems with their memory. Um, you know, just sort of uh, put put what's going on in context a little bit. You know, I know that they've changed the evidentiary rules to sort of protect. Um, uh, victims of sexual violence as much as they can, I guess. But, um, you know, it should, it should be at least be relevant to, to, um, to what's going on to be able to sort of, you know, if, if somebody is, is making a witness look bad because they're having trouble remembering things or they behaved oddly like that, th that should be addressable. And maybe it is. I don't know. Okay. Um, of course, you're representing the the alleged perpetrator here, right? No, I'm not talking um, about the defense. Of course, I mean it would yeah, it yeah. would it would be up to the other side. Yeah, I guess um, one thing they and yeah, they, and this case arose in the early '70s. This was he wrote this article in 87, as they said, this was 15 years earlier. So this was early seventies, long before the rule evidence rules changed. 
I guess one thing you could do is, is bring in expert witnesses to say, to testify how memory is unreliable, uh, something like that, maybe have expert witnesses who could respond to those questions without having to, to question the, the victim herself. Um, Kimberly, your hand was up and then you went away. Do you still want to yeah, talk? Yeah, um, I mean, you like, while I don't think that this line of questioning is morally permissible, you can absolutely rehabilitate your witnesses. Um, so you have a duty to your client and the, and I mean, you have to do what you have to do. So I'm not like a huge fan of this, but um, it's possible for this witness to be rehabbed. So it's not like after you impeach them, it's a done deal. There is still a chance that, you know, who's ever working with them can, can make them look better. Okay, so, so you have not, you know, destroyed the government's case by right. doing this. Um, but you have uh, re-traumatized the victim. Correct. By going through this. Um, the author, okay, so this, this case was in the early 70s. Apparently the author thought about this for 15 years and wrote this article. And he, he suggested that, or he advocated changing the rules um, by limiting the lawyer's defense to quote, good faith challenges to the state's case, right? Um, so that presumably, if that were a limitation, that would presumably prohibit this kind of questioning. Does anyone see any problems with that? Would you, or would you, would you advocate for that change or would you oppose it? Mitchell? I think I would oppose it um, only because I, I think it would be very difficult to apply in, um, in reality. Um, I think, you know, sort of that line between a good faith challenge, because I think the reason why it would be difficult to apply is I think you may almost have to expose confidential communications that you had with your client in order to sort of like almost adjudicate what is good faith and what isn't. Um, I don't know that, I guess I don't really know how you would draw that line without potentially exposing, uh, opposing counsel in, 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 in the court to, you know, possibly privileged communications, things like that with your client, sort of like the, um, you know, a, a battle of like what you know versus what you can reveal sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm looking at Rule 3.1. I'm wondering if uh, if that if that doesn't do the same thing as what uh, Professor Subin was proposing, right? And your lawyer shall not bring or defend a proceeding or assert or controvert an issue therein unless there is a basis in law and fact for doing so that is not frivolous, right? So would would this questioning be uh, frivolous? Um, controverting an issue, frivolously controverting an issue? Anybody have thoughts on it? I don't know. I mean, because obviously we, we, we have rule 3.1 and yet this kind of questioning, um, if, if it were today, if, but in, and if the federal rules of evidence allowed certain kinds of aggressive questioning in a, in a uh, rape case, would 3.1 prohibit it? And this is just a, sort of your, you know, any, any interpretations of that. I don't know of any case law that, would, that has argued that. I don't know. Um, so the uh, the author uh, said advocated changing the standards, uh, the rules, but it didn't change. So that's where we still are. 
Um, okay, anyone have any final comments on that article? Meanwhile, I'm going to pull the draw the shades here. Excuse me. That's better. Anyone have to, anything to add? Okay, um, let's talk briefly about 3.7. All right. Um, okay, 3.7, the law, uh, advocate witness rule. Okay, lawyer is witness. Lawyer shall not act as advocate at a trial in which the lawyer is likely to be a necessary witness. Okay, unless these these any of these three exceptions applies. Um, one important thing to remember about this rule, maybe the most important thing, is that this is not this rule does not prevent a lawyer from testifying. Does not, does not prohibit a lawyer from testifying. It's a disqualification rule, right? So it, that what it, that means is. If the lawyer is likely to be a necessary witness, then he can't advocate uh, for that lawyer, that client at trial. Right? Why is that? Why is why do we have that limitation? Um, anybody have any thoughts on that? The reasoning, the, the comment says that um, basically it's it's a confusion of roles, particularly in front of a, a jury. Um, the, uh, the, the lawyer, there, there's, there are lawyers and there are witnesses. And uh, if the lawyer were advocating for his client, litigating for his client, and then at some point goes sit up, sits up on the witness stand, that's going to be confusing. And the idea is that it would, well, the lawyer would, the, um, the jury would never know when the lawyer was, when the lawyer was telling the truth or advocating for his client. Um, when would a lawyer be called as, as a witness, as a necessary witness? Um, comment tells us that um, sort of a common situation would be um, if you know, if again, if the lawyer's lawyer was doing an internal investigation for an organization, we've talked about internal investigations. If if it happened to be that the lawyer was the sole witness to some statement or some factual happening or something like that, and the lawyer was the only person who could testify about it, then the lawyer would be a necessary witness, right? Uh, and also, the rule says. Um, a lawyer shall not advocate at a trial. So it does not say that the lawyer may not represent the client, right? It does not require that. It simply says that the lawyer can't stand up at court and advocate for the, for the client. So who, I think, frankly, you asked earlier on about whether these rules apply to the firm. Uh, and, and this rule does not. Um, Section B says a lawyer may advocate in a trial in which another lawyer is precluded from because because they're going to be a witness. So if, if uh, Franco, if you would be a necessary witness, and um, Jesse, who's another member of your firm, could get up and, and argue for it. So you could still do representation. You could you could uh, direct the representation even, but not appear in court. So that would be permitted. Um, what is a necessary witness? Okay. Um, again, a necessary witness means that, there, that you have to be there. That, um, again, the lawyer is the only person that has personal knowledge uh, about evidence that is not, in, not only relevant, but necessary, right? It bears directly on a controverted issue that is pivotal in resolving a dispute. So it's a narrow situation, right? Um, if the lawyer, if, if it would be nice to have the lawyer testify, but it would simply be cumulative, it would, it would add to already existing evidence, 
they're not a, a necessary witness. But if the lawyer, uh, if the lawyer didn't testify, that would there would be no evidence, no witness to, to testify at that. Then the lawyer is a necessary witness. Again, so that simply means that the lawyer um, could not could not advocate at trial for that client, but someone else in the firm could. Okay. Um, there's, let's see, any questions about that one? This, this also relates to and sort of reinforces through 3.4e, uh, which again, we'll talk about um, next, uh, I think I'm uh, starting on Wednesday. Lawyers shall not allude to any matter in trial that the lawyer does not reasonably believe is relevant. So again, so this is our, so this limits what the lawyer can say in court as opposed to 3.6, which limits what the lawyer can say out of court. So the lawyer can't assert anything in court that they don't think is relevant or is not gonna be supported by admissible evidence. Lawyer may not assert personal knowledge of facts except when testifying as a witness, right? So, um, when the lawyer is a necessary witness under 3.7, um, then the lawyer may assert personal knowledge of facts. That's an exception. Okay. So why do we have these rules? Uh, comment B in the restatement, restatement uh, section 107 talks about this. Um, and they give three reasons. One is that the, um, this rule, both these rules really, preserve the advocate's role as an independent professional agent Okay, um, I would, uh, and this I think is, is um, maybe a more substantial argument uh, that if if we allowed lawyers to get up and say things like, um, again, Rule three point four e, lawyer may not state a personal opinion as to the justice of a cause, credibility of a, a witness culpability or guilt lawyer may not state those personal opinions. Um, the idea is if we did a lawyer to, did allow a lawyer to make those kinds of statements to vouch for the truthfulness of a witness or uh, the innocence of a client in court, right? What about other clients that the lawyer could not vouch for? right? So that would uh, they would disparage the causes of other clients that the lawyer might represent whom they could not in good conscience stand up and say, I, I know my client is innocent, right? Okay, so that's, that's the reasoning for that. So any questions or comments on any of that? Nope. All right, guys. Um, Okay, so I'll see you on Wednesday, starting a new chapter, chapter 12, and uh, getting down to the wire here. So um, I'll see you on Wednesday. And we have another quiz on Friday, so, or this weekend. So I'll see you, see you Wednesday. Thank you, take care. Thanks a lot. Thank you. See you. Bye-bye. Professor Millis, I just had a quick question. Yeah. Um, I sent you an email on Sunday, but I, I didn't see if you, uh, I didn't see an answer, but there was a 